0: Welcome to Horizon. Well, today we're going to finish up our series called Novel Ideas. And we have been taking a look at classic works of literature and finding the places where they intersect with um, faith and, and life. And as Chad shared in our opener, today we're going to be looking at The Count of Monte Cristo. And this book is just a classic tale of betrayal and revenge. And it is carried out with surgical precision. Um, but my hope is to give us a little more than a, a caveman commentary on revenge. You know, something that goes a little like, revenge bad, forgiveness good. Right, because we, we kind of know that. That's what our moms or dads maybe taught us growing up. Um, well, today I'm going to try to turn it a, a little bit and look at the Count of Monte Cristo more through the lens of Betrayal. And the song that we started with, that Phil Collins classic, I mean, man, is that heavy, right? You can feel the angst in every single word. And I don't know if you know this, but Phil wrote that song in the middle of just a bitter and ugly divorce. And the pain from that divorce certainly comes through um, when you listen to it. And betrayal, is it interesting. So there's, there's so many wounds that life is going to afford us. Too many, unfortunately. Um, but betrayal has this special power to be extra painful because by definition, it comes from the, the words or the deeds of someone that we know, someone that we trust, even sometimes someone we love. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've felt the painful sting of betrayal in a marriage. Maybe you felt the the pain of betrayal in a friendship or a a work relationship. Well, I I don't know about you, but when I feel betrayal and it it hits me, my first instinct is the R word. Like, I just want to strike back. Like, I crave revenge. Like, I crave Chick-fil-A on a Sunday, right? Like, I just want to get even. Um, And I think but that, that instinct we all have is why the Count of Monte Cristo is so popular. It, it has been turned into a movie 24 times since it was written over 150 years ago. But it's a cautionary tale about revenge at its core. And it reminds me of a quote by Frederick Beekner, an author. He says this, it says, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past. To roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. That Beekner, with such vivid imagery um, paints the picture of revenge that it's called sweet revenge for a reason. That it it tastes good to think about it and even sometimes to dole it out. But in the end the only victim is is going to be ourselves. And in our tale today, the protagonist, Edmund Dantes, as he finishes up extolling all his revenge, he is going to be left still amazingly broken and amazingly empty. That revenge is always going to come with a hefty price tag, and that is the cost of our heart. So today, I'm going to pose three questions that we can ask ourselves the the next time betrayal shows up at our doorstep. Um to hopefully avoid um, doubling down on that pain. And the first one is this: When betrayal hits, will I crumble, or will I stumble? So we start off the story with Edmund Dantes, and he is having just the best day of his life. Okay, he's returned from sea, which at this time in the world was just a miracle to come back alive. Um, he, he rekindles with his old love, Mercedes, the prettiest girl in town, and he proposes to her and she says, yes. I mean, everything is going Edmund's way. Um, then he learns that he is going to be the, the new captain for the pharaoh, which is the boat he's been at sea for, for months and he is gonna be the youngest captain ever to head this ship. He's only 19 years old. Um, so everything is going Edmund's way. I mean, it is blue skies, birds chirping, um, amazing times. But unfortunately, three of his friends are also taking notice. Okay, and they are not happy for Edmund like a good friend should be. Um, in fact, they, they hatch a plan where they are going to turn Edmund in as a traitor And it's totally fabricated, um, but their jealousy burns so deep that they're going to betray their friends. So in a blink of an eye, Edmund is going to go from having the best day of his life. He'll be at a party celebrating his engagement to Mercedes. The switch will flip and betrayal is going to fall out of the sky like a tornado and just turn his world upside down. The soldiers will arrive. They'll put him in handcuffs. They will take him off to a kangaroo court before a magistrate. He's going to be sentenced to life in the Chateau d'If, which is an island prison that is just barbaric, and it is where prisoners were sent to just die. I wonder if you've had a day like that, where you've woken up, your head bounces off the pillow. Um, The sun is shining. Things are great. But by the end of the day, when you put your head back down on the pillow, oh my goodness, has life changed. That a betrayal popped out of the sky and dropped down like a tornado and just began to wreak havoc in your world. Well, that's what's going on here with Edmond Dantes. And and as he begins to take up residency here in the Chateau d'If. Um, we get a little glimpse into how he's doing. It says Dantes passed through all the stages of torture natural to prisoners in suspense. He was sustained at first by that pride of conscious innocence, which is the sequence to hope. Then he began to doubt his own innocence, which justified in some measure the governor's belief in his mental alienation. And then relaxing his sentiment of pride, he addressed his supplications not to God, but to man. God is always the last resource, unfortunates, who ought to begin with God, do not have any hope in him until they have exhausted all other means of deliverance. So we learn that Edmund initially is kind of, his spirits are lifted by his innocence. That he's thinking, surely somebody's gonna realize I'm not a traitor. (laughs) Um, And then he, he starts to doubt that. And then he starts to reach out to anybody who will listen, um, any man that could help him. He's trying to find help and he's finding nothing, nothing at all. And then the, the minutes become hours and the hours become days and the days become weeks and the weeks become months and the months become years. And before Edmund knows it, he's been in the Chateau d'If for six years, six years. And probably much longer than it would take me, Edmund begins to crumble beneath the weight of this betrayal and he hatches a plan it says dantes says i wish to die and he had chosen the manner of his death and fearful of changing his mind he had taken an oath to die when my morning and evening meals are brought thought he i will cast them out the window and they will think that i have eaten them so his plan here he's going to starve himself to death he is completely out of hope. And I would imagine that there's someone listening to me right now who that is, that's where you're at. That maybe it's a betrayal, maybe it's something else in your life that you are just completely empty on hope. And I want to promise you that there, there is hope. And uh, this character, Edmund Dantes, he reminds me, his story very much of the real person Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. And just like Edmund, he's betrayed by his friends. Um, Just like Edmund, he's gonna be captured in the night, taken away to a kangaroo court and sentenced to death. Right? Just like Edmund, Jesus' life is going to go from like the best week ever, where he enters Jerusalem on a donkey, um, which sounds pretty cool. Um, Everybody's screaming his name. They're shouting, Hosanna! You know, they're laying down palm leaves on the road. Um, He enters with so much regal and royalty like a king. But then, just like Edmund, out out of the sky, that betrayal tornado is going to fall down in the midst of his week, and chaos is just. Going to ensue. Okay, he is about to face betrayal by his friends. He's about to face unthought-of-unfathomable torture and physical pain. And we know that Jesus was fully God, but at the same time, he's fully human. That he was gonna face and feel all of these emotions, but but also all of these physical pain. And we get a glimpse into Jesus' mind and what he's thinking in the midst of this. It says, as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. And he's in agony and it says that he's sweating so much that his sweat's becoming like great drops of blood. And here maybe we're, we're seeing Jesus, and, and you could re- read this as a critic and start to think, well, maybe, maybe he's about to crumble, right? Like maybe those are the cracks. Take this cup away from me, agony. Those are the cracks of a crumbling man. You know, maybe the weight of this betrayal, the weight of um, the future pain he's about to experience is just going to crush him. But as pastors do, I left out a little line <laughs> that we're going to look at now um, to see What's really going on in Jesus' mind here? So we go back, nevertheless, not my, or I'm sorry, we go back, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus isn't going to crumble here. Instead, he's going to stumble forward through this betrayal. And I know that sounds crazy to say that the the God of the universe is going to stumble doing anything, Um, but after he's arrested, he'll be beaten and mocked and spit upon. And and that same city he entered with such triumph only days before, he is now going to be forced to drag a huge beam, the wood from the cross that will kill him, through the streets. And and friends, it's not going to be regal and royal he's going to stumble and and he's even going to fall. And and the God of the universe is going to need help carrying this wood up the hill where he'll be executed. And I think for us, though, there's a a great piece of wisdom in that. That sometimes as we begin to make our ways away from a betrayal, that that those steps, they're not always going to be a prideful strut, right? Where you're just like, yeah, moving on. No, very often they're gonna be an awkward stumble and that's okay, right? An awkward stumble away from betrayal always beats a complete crumble. I'll always take it. And here's the good news too. It's in those moments where we're taking those feeble and sometimes blind steps away from a staggering betrayal It's in those moments where Jesus wants to meet us. In Psalms, it says this, it says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And when you've been betrayed, my goodness, aren't those the two words that you feel most? That you're brokenhearted and you're crushed? Well, that, that is right when God wants to draw near to you like a good father. And the best part is, is that like who better to draw near than Jesus who, who knew and knows the sting of betrayal just like we do. So will I crumble or will I stumble the next time betrayal hits me? Well, that, that brings us to the second question I want to pose today. It's when betrayal hits, will I be consumed by hate, or by hope. Okay, so we pick up with Edmond Dantes. And uh, he is committed now to this, this hunger strike that's going to lead to his, his own death. Okay, and he is now days into it. Um, he's starting to feel delirious. The lights are starting to grow dim in his mind. And he starts to hear this scratching, okay? This ch 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 and it's in the walls. And, it, and at first he's thinking, oh, it's just my roommates, the rats, right? Like they're always scratching. Um, but then it becomes more predictable. And it goes on for hours. It'll stop. It'll come back the next day. Um, and then the scratching moves to the floor. And it's underneath him. And he's hearing shh, shh, shh. And he's starting to realize that, that someone is trying to dig their way in to his cell, Right, and he hasn't had visitors for a while, so he's kind of up for this. Um, So he starts digging too, right, and in the middle they're going to meet and then out from the floor is going to pop this Italian man, okay. And crazy, this man named Faria is going to pop out of the floor and he is much older than Edmund um, and they call him the mad monk. He's a retired priest that has been sent to the Chateau d'If because of political views, and he's always talking about this treasure, you know, that he, he has somewhere. And he's trying to bribe guards. And they're just like, you're crazy. You're mad. But Faria is an educated man. And, and over the course of the next eight years, he is going to teach Edmund everything he knows about culture and history, politics, government, faith. He's just going to download all of his knowledge into Edmund's mind. But he's also and he'll regret this, he's also going to help Edmund piece together his betrayal. Because up until now, Edmund doesn't quite know, six years in, um, who betrayed him. But Faria is so smart, and they have so much time on their hands, um, that they piece it together. And this is going to fill Edmund with nothing but hate. Hate. So now every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year for eight years all Edmund thinks about is killing the three men that betrayed him. He is just consumed with hatred. It's all he can think about. And as fate would have it Faria is going to die of a stroke and in the chaos of Faria's death Edmund is going to escape from the Chateau d'If. He'll find the treasure, okay? And then he's gonna have a decision to make. And I think we all get to this point after, be, after a betrayal. Okay, he has spent six years crumbling in the Chateau d'If. He spent three additional years learning and growing under Faria. And now he is out and he is the richest man in France. Treasures unimaginable are at his disposal. Well, what, what's he going to do? Well, here, here's what's crazy is he will spend another 10 years plotting the revenge on his three enemies. And, and my Madeira math tells me that that is 24 years of his life now um, that he can chalk up to this betrayal. But the last 10 are by choice. And as he's making his way through these 10 years and he begins to execute his revenge, he's going to come across Mercedes, his former love. And now to put salt in the wounds, she's married to one of the men who betrayed him. And after some interaction, she's going to see through the cloak, the mask of the Count of Monte Cristo that he's been wearing. And she's going to see that he's Edmond Dantes. And she's gonna talk him try to talk him out of this crazy revenge plan and and say, Edmund, just live your life, be happy. And here's what he says to her. He says, If ever, if you ever loved me, don't rob me of my hate. It's all I have. Friends, he's he's the richest man in the whole country. He has his freedom, and he's saying, all I have is my hate. Like, what a lonely and empty place to be. But I I can relate somewhat. Uh, About seven years ago, my family lived in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, We had moved there for, for work. We'd been sent there, uh, 12 hours away from our, our homes in Cincinnati. And uh, a couple years in, things are going pretty well. Honestly, they're still growing and moving. And uh, I get a call from my boss at the time. And um, he, he said a sentence that I'll, I'll never forget. <laughs> and he said it very nonchalantly. Like he was just talking about the weather. He said, hey, hey, Ryan. So, you know, you're, you're not getting any younger, I'm like, well, that's kind of how it works, man. Sorry. Um, And and you're not quite as good with students as you used to be. Um, And, you know, you've never been good at raising money. And he was right. I was never good at raising money. Um, And then he ended with this. He said, and if you're not careful, you're going to find yourself doing something new pretty soon. And friends, I got to tell you, I had no words like I don't even know how I ended the call, uh, to be quite honest, because after 21 years with an organization, um, that was never how I imagined that conversation being broached in, in a really nonchalant phone call, and I was completely crushed. Within a matter of a few months. I found out that a younger man than me and a cooler man than me, which isn't very hard, um, it's pretty much everybody, and most importantly a cheaper man than me, um, someone without a family, uh, wanted my job and a few months later with no fanfare, with no uh, goodbye party, no memory book to take with me, um, I was left with just deafening silence. And we were left to find what was next after moving our family 12 hours from home, building a house, settling our kids over the course of five years. And I got to tell you, I wanted to just crumble, or better analogy, I wanted to melt into a puddle and just exist, right? But I couldn't. I had four amazing kids at home and a, a wife at home that I loved, so I, I stumbled <laughs> And I began to just stumble forward at the best of my ability. And God in his goodness, and it was an awkward stumble, let me tell you, God in his goodness that led us back to Cincinnati and led me to horizon. And I can say this honestly, it led me to what I would call the the best job that I've ever had. Way better than what I did for 21 years. But let me tell you, I was angry. Okay? And, and I'm pretty even-keeled, so it didn't show or pop out a whole lot of times. And, and no, I didn't have some crazy revenge plan, you know, like the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, but the anger was always there. And one day in counseling, um, the counselor I was meeting with said, Hey, Ryan, let's do an exercise. I want you to write a letter to your former boss and share everything you would like to share with him. Um, but we're not going to mail it because we're not like totally crazy. Uh, but just do that. And I did it, and let me tell you, like the emotions that poured out onto that paper, the the hurt that poured out onto that paper, overwhelmed me. It just surprised me, and I realized in that moment that, man, I've been paying a, a huge price to carry this hatred. It was coming at the cost of my mental health, my spiritual health, my relationships. And I knew I had to let go. I had to stop being consumed by hate and start being consumed by hope. The hope that God had redeemed this betrayal into, again, just a better place for me and my family. It makes me think of Jesus. So, so who more um, than Jesus could have had a right to be angry? right? Like he came to earth, he healed people, fed people, raised people from the dead. Um, All he got eventually was killed for it. Um, So you would imagine like, man, who more could be angry than Jesus, right? Well, after Jesus has prayed in the garden and he's about to be captured, Okay, the the guards are coming for him. Um, Jesus' disciples have been a little confused about what's been going on for a while. So they think it's about to go down. Okay, they think like lightning bolts are about to start coming out of Jesus' eyes and flames are going to come out of his mouth. And he's really going to start, you know, kicking some tail. Um, So one of his men is going to pull out a sword, Peter, and and try to cut off the head of one of these guards. And he's going to miss and just catch the ear. Um, But Jesus is going to say this to him. He's going to say, Peter, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? So Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, I'm I'm not consumed with hate. Like if I want to do exact revenge, like I could call in 72,000 angels. That's what 12 legions are. And I could do it with a whisper. And I would extol revenge that would make the Count of Monte Cristo look like a children's lullaby. Um, but I'm not consumed by hate. I'm consumed by hope. I'm consumed by the fact that this must happen so that I can free you, Peter. I, I've got to face this so that I can save you, Peter. That Jesus is consumed by hope in this moment, not by hatred. So the next time betrayal hits, ask yourself that question. Will I be consumed by hatred or will I be consumed by hope? And that leads me to my last question. When betrayal hits, will I seek revenge or will I seek restoration? And here's what I mean by restoration. I don't mean restoration with the person who betrayed you. Sometimes that's possible. A lot of times it's honestly not. I really mean restoration of your heart. That betrayal is an amazing wound. It creates a huge cavity in your heart. And moving on, do you want to settle for for revenge Which is really what I think revenge is. It's a less than. You're settling for something. Or do you really want restoration? Do you want your heart to be restored? So after Edmund Dantes has poured out all of his wrath on his enemies. Again, we're now 25 plus years into this betrayal. um, He has done everything he ever imagined. The sweet revenge has rained down from heaven like lightning on everyone. Um, He is going to stop. And he's going to begin to count the costs. He's going to begin to think of all of those years wasted. He's going to feel that I don't feel any better. (laughs) I've killed people. I've done everything I wanted and I still feel horribly empty. And he's going to see all the collateral damage that he's caused. And he's going to say this. Fool that I am, said he, that I did not tear out my heart the day I resolved to revenge myself. And, and do you catch that? That he uses the word heart. <laughs> Which is really helpful for my hypothesis. So thank you for that. Um, that he's saying, hey, this, this 24-year experience, some of it falls on me I had no control over. Some of it is my fault. But in the end, I wish I could totally just take my heart out The day that I said I was going to revenge or avenge myself. That there was no peace in it for him whatsoever. Well, I want to end here by getting a little practical. We've talked a lot of theory and um, I want to end with giving you some practical thoughts. Okay, and and these aren't mind-blowing, but they were helpful for me. I have an author that I like named John Acuff. And he has a quote. It says that to control the things that you can... But control your response to the things you cannot. And obviously, there's a whole lot of things in the things I can, cannot control <laughs> um, column, especially these days. But one of them is certainly betrayal. Right? Like I have no control over a betrayal by a spouse, a friend, a family, employees, business partners. Like betrayal just drops out of the sky again like a tornado. But I can control my response to that betrayal. I have full control of that. And if I want, I can seek revenge, but it, it's certainly going to come with a cost, right? It's certainly going to cost me my peace, my joy, my mental health a lot of times. I would argue my spiritual health. It's going to impact my relationships. It, it's really going to come at the cost, as Dante Dantes just said, of my heart. Um, or I can look for recovery or restoration. That ultimately what I want is I want, I want my heart to be restored again after this betrayal. And restoration is going to come in three ways is what I found. Okay, it's going to come in healing for my wounds. And like, man, after I felt that betrayal after 21 years, I needed to talk to somebody. I needed to have good counsel and good friends, right? I needed to talk that out so that I could heal. Um, that's the first thing that restoration involves. <clears throat> it also involves um, learning from my wounds, right? That Not that the betrayals are our fault, but what can we learn from them so that maybe we don't enter into that type of, relationship again or put ourselves in a position business-wise again. That again, maybe not our fault whatsoever, but man, I want to I learn from that. And then the last part of restoration is, is finding a new life with our scars. That betrayal certainly, certainly leaves scars. They don't just go away. We move on, but we still feel The pain and the scars from that wound. And again it it makes me think of Jesus. Okay so Jesus is uh, he's captured that night. He puts the ear back on the guard. Um, They take him away. Again they're gonna mock him, beat him, spit on him. Um, Eventually they're gonna brutally execute him. And then spoiler alert he is gonna rise again. Right? Maybe you've heard that. Um, he's going to come back and he's going to be in a big churchy word in a resurrected body. Okay? It's basically he's just back to life. Um, and, and he's going to surprise his disciples, his buddies. He's going to enter the room. It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled because Jesus was dead only hours before, days before. Um, and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? And then I want you to catch this part. He says, look at my hands and my feet. It is myself. And I don't think Jesus had really distinguishable hands. Like, oh my gosh, Jesus' hands are so hairy. Of course that's him. I think he's saying, look at my scars. Like it's me. You you just watch spikes be pushed through those hands of mine. And here's my question. Why would the resurrected Jesus again, he, he comes back, he, he's kind of this perfect body at this point. Why would he come back with scars? Why not just come back completely healed from that traumatic <laughs> execution? Well, well, here's why. J- just a few books later in the Bible, it says, "Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren." that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. That Jesus wanted to be made like us in every way so that he could be merciful and faithful, so he could be empathetic, so he could know what it feels like to be betrayed, knows what it feels like to wake up with a hungry stomach. Um, He knew every emotion, every feeling we've ever had. And when we're betrayed, we move on with our scars, so when Jesus was betrayed, he makes this decision to move on with his scars as well. And I think that is just an amazing thing that I want you to think about, um, that in the midst of your betrayal, the next time you want to crumble, you want to you just melt into a puddle on the floor like I did, um, man, in, in steps Jesus and, and he says, hey, stumble with me, Look at my hands, look at my feet. I've been there. I, I know what it's like to be scarred from betrayal. Or the next time you want to just be filled with hatred and just all you can think about is sweet revenge, we'll, we'll look to, to Jesus and say, hey, man, he, he was justified in feeling that way. And, and he just decided to focus on hope and the hope that God can even redeem our worst betrayal into. Maybe the best thing that's ever happened to us eventually. And lastly, when we want to seek revenge, man, can we turn to Jesus, look at those scars, know that he is merciful and faithful, and instead seek restoration of our hearts? Well, we're going to end today with a a song, and it's heavy. And it's this idea of having that rug pulled out from underneath you and feeling that. Um, but he's also going to say, hey, I need somebody to, to heal. I need somebody to know. I need somebody to hold me. right?" And, and what I want to encourage you with is feel the angst in the song, but also feel the hope that we can find in our stumbling through betrayal, but overcoming it, Savior of Jesus